This is a word fitly spoken by words about reading the scriptures, about preaching the scripture, and about the mission on which the scripture sends all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in his holy word. I'm Willie Grills, joined as always with Reverend Zelwyn Heidi, here to talk about the Second Great Awakening and revivalism. So that's going to be fun. Zelwyn, how's it going? <laughs> Doing well. Yeah, it's going to be an entertaining discussion, if only because I continuously marvel at the depth of your knowledge of this movement. So, well, don't don't you know lift me up too high, lest I come <laughs> crashing down. Well, your praise is coming from the lips of someone else. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, things going well for you? Yeah, no, things are going really well. I'm looking forward to getting some things done around here. Uh, the weather's been nice. Been able to work outside. Everybody's in the midst of haying right now, and that's taking up everybody's attention. But always good. So dry weather then. Uh, fairly dry, but actually we're remarkably green. I know that sounds weird, but for this part of the world to still be green shows that we've had an exceptionally rainy year, which is a tremendous blessing, especially compared to last year. Well, that explains your unusually sunny disposition these last few broadcasts. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, so, you know, we, we're, we're entering this broadcast with a with a very positive outlook and a very optimistic outlook. That dovetails nicely into the climate of the Second Great Awakening. Yeah, it really does. And when we're talking about the Second Great Awakening, Willie, I mean, somebody might ask us, why would you study this at all? I mean, what's the point in looking at this particular period in history? Yes. Why, why are we going here? Yeah, certainly. So it is the most influential period of American Christianity. We are still feeling the effects of the Second Great Awakening today, more so than the First Great Awakening, certainly. And then if you believe in, in this historical idea of a Third Great Awakening, uh, which is really just sort of an extension of the Second, we are absolutely living with the effects of it today. We are Americans. Most of our audience are Americans. If you're not an American listening to it, just bear with me. As an American, this is part of our shared national heritage and history. And as pastors, even as Luther, as LCMS Lutheran pastors, I don't think we can properly shepherd unless we come to a reckoning of the Second Great Awakening, simply because our members are so enamored with this kind of theology and with this view of history that comes out of the Second Great Awakening. I, I do think we need to understand this to understand our current context. So you're saying that it essentially shapes the American religious landscape like in a way that we just can't even avoid it? Is that kind yeah, of what you're getting it, at? You, you cannot avoid the effects of the Second Great Awakening. You cannot avoid the effects, the effects of revivalism, which finds its roots in the First Great Awakening, but really takes its modern shape in the Second. It's not only influenced the religious landscape in an isolated way, it's influenced our political landscape as well, our cultural landscape, you, you'll start to see things crop up like blue laws and Sunday laws. Now, the Sunday laws are older. I mean, the blue laws are older, but you'll start to see things like the temperance movement, which still affects many communities today, which is still very much part of our consciousness. And then you'll see the style of many evangelical preachers today, which finds its roots directly in the Second Great Awakening. You'll see these large religious movements today that did not exist 
until the time of the Second Great Awakening, as we're going to see. Well, let me let me ask another question then, maybe just before we get into some of the specifics. We as Missouri Synod Lutherans, I mean, we're coming out of a culture, uh, a group which more or less was reacting against this kind of movement. I mean, because this is the the period in which our uh, denomination. Well, not, I mean, it's a little too early for when it was created, but it's certainly going to affect us, you know, going on forward. But how do, how does it shape the way that we as Lutherans in America exist and continue to, to go forward? If that makes any sense. Sure. A lot of it depends on the congregation, to what degree they have been influenced by it. The modern church growth movement, for example, I think is very much influenced by men of the Second Great Awakening and, you know, and a little bit beyond that. Men like Charles Finney, for example, an idea of a very pragmatic style of preaching, whether negative or positive, finds its roots in the Second Great Awakening. We still see, even though we're beyond, uh, we're allegedly in a post-Christian culture, but we still see plenty of large-scale revivals in our communities, even in Mm -hmm. these purported secular communities that very much model themselves after after the precedent set by the revivalists in the Second Great Awakening. And you can't avoid Americanisms. You can't avoid American customs, even in a, in a strictly German Lutheran church. There are just going to be things that have become a part of our culture. And you find them present even in Missouri Synod congregations, for good or ill. Again, not coming down on one side or the other just yet. Um, there are negatives and there are, there are a lot of negatives to the second great awakening, which we'll talk about. However, I do believe there are some positives that we can take away from this, which we'll get into later. If you want to know what those are, you have to stay tuned. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, let's get into the nitty gritty then the, the hard details. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) When we talk about the second great awakening, what time period are we talking about? Yeah, we're talking about a period from 1790 to around 1840. And then most would say this Third Great Awakening is 1855 to 1900. Realistically, with the way time works, you could honestly extend the Second Great Awakening probably into 1860 or so. Okay. And and really, it's it's going to be almost up until World War One that you start to see the first real chinks in the armor of what was set forth by the Second Great Awakening. And what's going on in American history at that time? I mean, when we're dealing with the the reality of the American context and how that shapes the Second Great Awakening. You have, first and foremost, what's commonly known as the Burned Over District. So that's a, a district in West Central New York where religious revivals take place, these, these, these large revivals. And this is one of the beginnings of the... Second Great Awakening. You have a lot of things coming out of that, the Latter-day Saint movements, the later Millerites, Fox Sisters, Shakers, that sort of thing. But the term burnt over, to quote Charles Charles Finney, uh, (laughs) meant this. Uh, Charles Finney says, I found that region of country what, in Western phrase, would be called a burnt district. There had been a few years previously, a wild excitement passing through the region, which they called a revival religion, but which turned out to be Spurious. It was reported as having been an extravagant excitement resulting in a reaction so extensive and profound as to leave the impression on many minds that religion was a mere delusion and so on and so forth. So the idea was that these big revivals came through, but then 
they they died out so quickly and then Christianity could not take root. So Finney, even Finney comes out to say genuine revival cannot take place here because this district has been, you know, burnt, burnt over. And there are a couple of different understandings of the term burnt over. So that sure. that's the that's one of the first big ones. So why is New York important in in the uh, in the East? Well, simply because that's also the setting of the first Great Awakening, which is a very different tenor from the second. The first Great Awakening is, for the most part, going to preserve a lot of the historic Calvinistic doctrines that are hallmarks of American Christianity. Now, there's going to be new light, old light Presbyterians, and that's really an intra-Calvinistic debate over evangelism. But they're mostly going to retain these historic doctrines, and they're going to retain historic models for pastoral training. And you have men like Edwards in the First Great Awakening, men like Whitfield, even a Lutheran who was around at the time named Henry Muhlenberg. Or am I supposed to say Heinrich Muhlenberg? For the WFS crowd. Um, Get it right, yeah. <laughs> so, so you have that. But the American population begins to shift west. Now, mm-hmm. what is west? Today we think west, we think John Wayne, we think the southeast, or excuse me, the southwest, we think, you know, deserts, that sort of thing. But do you know what the west is at this time? Well, the west would be what? What we call the Midwest, right? Yeah, the Midwest or, you know, other parts, you know, do we really want to put Kentucky in the Midwest just yet? Um, But yeah, the Midwest. (laughs) That's something you can decide for yourself. (laughs) The Midwest in those parts, Daniel Boone country. So, So that's the West we're talking about here. And what begins to happen then are people are going out and settling the West, sometimes in spite of the government, like the Scots-Irish in many cases. (laughs) <laughs> and who, who's surprised <laughs> right those rabble rousers <laughs> distillers but but there are germans there are others so that they're, they're creeping west and you find a greater isolated culture it's not necessarily more rural because america is still by and large a rural nation at this time but it's certainly more isolated than it was in the past so sure you have a new revivalistic movement that's going to pick up and it's going to focus mostly on the West or what is considered the West at this time. Yeah. And I suppose that would be, be because out in the West, uh, because it, the expansion had been so quick that the churches hadn't really had any time to keep up. Right. 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 Yeah. That's, that's basically what's happening. That's where you see the rise of the circuit rider. And mm-hmm. you can tell the tell the folks what a circuit rider is, since you're part of that grand heritage. <laughs> since I basically am one, is that what you're saying? <laughs> right, but a good one. Well, I mean, the circuit riders being the men who would preach at a number of preaching stations, basically to hold services in an area and then move on. The idea being to cover ground quickly in order to serve not even that many people, but to serve people over an extremely wide geographical area. You have this even in the early parts of the North Dakota district of the Missouri Synod, and I know you you think that I am one too, <laughs> when guys would serve as many as 12, 14, 16 preaching stations, Certainly. especially over in the eastern part of, of this state. Yeah. And that was just Lutherans, you know. Yeah, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just something that crops up out of necessity. In the Missouri Synod, we have many famous examples of circuit riders and men whom we uphold as role models. And and so like men like Winnikin, nobody's going to find fault with Winnikin, I hope. 
I mean, somebody <laughs> probably could, but by most <laughs> accounts, a man to be imitated. And, and we certainly have, we certainly have others. We have it in the, you know, the, the other synods that, you know, that are going to come later, you know, Reverend Bites and others later on, you know, who are going to really fill that, that, that gap that's needed. <laughs> and so, you know, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. But the stereotypical circuit rider in the American consciousness comes to be the Methodist circuit rider. Right. And when we think Methodist, we tend to think of the modern conception. We don't really mm-hmm. associate Methodism with Anglicanism like it historically should have been. John uh, Wesley, George Whitfield, both Methodists, both revivalists, but really of a different caste. Sure. And by the Second Great Awakening, the Methodists are starting to separate more. You know, that part part of it's the American Revolution, certainly, that which separates the American church from the English church. But you have the Methodist circuit riders. There are Baptists, there are others. But the Methodists are the ones, for whatever reason, that become the stereotypical model. Now, sure. what begins to happen, though, is that the qualifications in certain circumstances are lowered. Prior to the mm-hmm. Second Great Awakening, the majority of American denominations and, and white Christian denominations in general are going to require extensive education, seminary education, similar to what you know the Missouri Synod has today. Sure. Yes, you're going to see this relaxed in some cases. You're going to see these requirements ignored in a lot of cases too, and that is eventually what ends up happening. And that's part of the reason you see a lot of the fracturing of the American of the American Protestant landscape at this time. There's going to be a big debate over well the Bible doesn't doesn't say that we have to have this kind of training so we're going to we're just going to go off. And that's where the circuit rider in a in some context gets a bad name because oftentimes a circuit rider be he Baptist, Methodist, whatever is a man who is going out and teaching people and who is in many cases through his own persuasion gathering these large crowds but he does not have the biblical literacy necessary to carry out this task with fidelity. Now I don't want to say that, that that men who lack education in the Second Great Awakening are necessarily snake oil salesmen or shysters or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying, although you do have them. A lot of men sincerely wanted to go out and preach the gospel. The problem was they took it upon themselves to do so without being regularly called by their ordaining body. And that leads to a lot of ecclesial conflict during the Second Great Awakening. And that's why the the Second Great Awakening is such an upheaval, because you're seeing historical denominations being rebuked by upstarts and rebels and other things at this time. Well, this is also partly a product of the time period, if only because you have this tremendous upheaval in America uh, stemming from the uniqueness of the American scene, that's causing us to become, for the lack of a better term, some somewhat anti-intellectual. Sure, and, c- and certainly anti-authority. Because because we have founded, and this is the way the thought goes, we have founded a new thing here that has been that's completely different from anything that's come before it. That we have no ties to the old ways, you know, the old country. Right. Therefore, new is starting to take this connotation of meaning better. Yes, yes. And that's why the Second Great Awakening is uniquely American. Now, you will have influences outside of America, like John Nelson Darby, for example, 
But for all intents and purposes, this is a uniquely American religious movement. Now, it grew to such that it has now expanded into all the world. And a lot of the revivalistic movements that you see in the what, what uh, sociologists call the global south today are really just extensions of that second great awakening. Now, again, folks, I'm speaking in purely sociological and historical terms here. Okay, if you want to believe in this latter rain movement or some great movement, you know, coming through, that's fine. But the fact is, is that the model followed by a lot of the revivalists going into the world today, these large Pentecostal revivalists, charismatics, and even Baptists and and others, depending, they are following the precedent set by the preachers of the Second Great Awakening. And that's just a historical fact that cannot be disputed. And I'll lay the gauntlet down and we can debate on that, but it is just a fact. Maybe one thing to also bring out here and have you comment on it, since you have this intellectual movement of the newer is better and this kind of anti-authoritarian, but everything is getting better kind of a thing. How do these groups view in terms of like eschatology? I mean, they're they're essentially post-millennial, right? Right, right. And we'll come back to this a couple of times. So one of the hallmarks is a great optimism. And mm-hmm. one of one of these optimistic tenets is a view of the end times called postmillennialism. And in a nutshell, postmillennialism says that the church will expand and expand and gain more influence and more influence, and the world will get better and better through the work of the church and the influence of the church. And when the world gets so good, then Jesus will come back. So it's a triumphal understanding of the church on earth. Not that we aren't triumphalists. We are. Jesus Christ will conquer. You know, as all millennialists, you know, we, we do believe that. But we do mm-hmm. have a pessimistic view of the of the end times, that the world gets more wicked and wicked, and then Jesus comes back and judges. Postmillennialists mm-hmm. don't see that. And the millennium is very important. So basically, postmillennialism, as you see it at this time, means that Jesus will come back once the world is good and reign for a glorious thousand years, and then you have all of the the rest of the end time events. And then that ushers in the final kingdom. One famous historian, whom I cannot, I can't recall his name, but he said that that Americans at the time were drunk on the millennium. And so millennialism, when you hear it in this context, does not mean just yet dispensational premillennialism, although dispensationalism does begin its rise here. It largely refers to postmillennialism. You look at someone like Alexander Campbell of the uh, Christian Church, Churches of Christ, whom even if you don't know what I'm talking about, you've bumped into him probably. His newspaper is called The Millennial Harbinger. Literally, they believe that their movement would usher in <laughs> this millennium. And that's the optimism. Yeah, does it come across as haughty? Yes, it comes across as very haughty and arrogant today. And trust me, it, it, it did in the 1850s too, or in the 1830s or 1820s or earlier. But these men believed that they were ushering in this glorious golden age of Christianity. And their optimism in their minds was confirmed by these giant, successful, in a worldly sense, revivals where they saw what they believed were manifestations of the Holy Spirit and where they saw what they believed were great multitudes coming to Christ and converting. So their optimism is not without warrant. And it's not necessarily a delusion, you know, the way we would think of it. They're, they're not giving inaccurate accounts of what's going on. There are great religious movements, but the debate is, why are these people converting and through what means? 
So with that, I guess we've got to go to our first break here. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history. www.wordfitlyspoken.org We are back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken, Willie Grill, Zell and Heidi, talking the second Great Awakening, or, if you're more of a pessimist, the so-called Second Great Awakening. You always got to put your little spin on it. All right. <laughs> always have to. Always have to. <laughs> so we've talked about what the Second Great Awakening is, Willie, and went into some pretty important details about you know how to define it. But now we need to talk about how it actually affects the Christian scene, maybe in more concrete ways. So the the denominations that were in existence already, how did the Second Great Awakening affect them? Yeah, so the established denominations. So, for example, the Presbyterians are going to feel this effect very hard. You're going to see some very influential men break away from established Presbyterianism. Now, prior to the Second Great Awakening, the American Presbyterian Church was very much in league with classic Presbyterianism, with one exception, that would be the role of civil magistrates and things, but that's an American Revolution question we don't need to go into. The Presbyterians are going to suffer breakaway groups who no longer believe in in a strong Calvinism, who in many cases no longer believe in many of the central tenets as found in the Westminster Standards, which would be the the confessional body of documents for the Presbyterian Church. So you're going to see men who are Presbyterian ministers reject predestination. You're going to see men who reject effectual calling. You're going to see men who reject infant baptism, for example. And we, you know, it's kind of funny. We don't really think about Calvinism and infant baptism together, which we really should, because sure. that's what Calvin taught. But as long as we're stuck to the five points of Calvinism, I guess we won't get into it. But you're going to see these men reject these historic tenets. And you're going to see men that we'll talk about a little bit later, like Barton W. Stone, for example, who break away. You're going to see things like the Cumberland Presbyterian Movement, which I won't bore you with all the details on that, but they're going to be very different from historic Presbyterianism. Probably the most affected would be the Baptists. When we when you think of a Baptist today, Zelwyn, because we are all about stereotypes here, how do <laughs> how do you how do you, like how would you describe Baptist theology or your average Baptist service? That's a great question because I know some pretty wacky Baptist groups. <laughs> if you know, you'd probably say like an emphasis on preaching, people who we would call Bible thumpers, I suppose. Okay, you know, sing some hymns, preach for. And what we might consider an ungodly length of time, <laughs> right. you know, that kind of thing. And a rejection, pretty fir- a firm rejection of infant baptism, you know, all those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, well, to be sure, that's what makes you a Baptist. You're not going to baptize them babies. Um, they do have that in common <laughs> with historic Baptists. But would you would you say that they are more today, in the majority, more on the Arminian side or the Calvinist side? 
Oh, I see. I would say they're pretty solidly Arminian. You yeah. Know, the decision theology, you got to make a choice for Jesus, that sort of thing. Right. So, so prior to the Second Great Awakening, they're Calvinists. Of course. Now, yeah. This is, this is where we're going to get letters, but it's, <laughs> they are Calvinists. Um, the Southern Baptist has the whole founders movement. The Southern Baptists, you know, you know, who knows what's going on with them today? I watch the news, but... Uh, they, they still have the founders movement within the Southern Baptist Convention, for example, and they're all about restoring Calvinism as the historic position of American Baptists, and they're correct. And it's the historic position of English Baptists, which is where the modern Baptist movement comes from. But what what happens, though, the Second Great Awakening, you start to see more and more. This was one of the, the things, you know, the, unlike the Presbyterians or the Anglicans, there's no sort of centralized form of government. The Presbyterians have a plurality of elders. Of course, the Anglicans and the Episcopalians have the episcopacy, but the Baptists are always firmly independent and firmly mm-hmm. congregationalist. Not to be confused with the Congregationalist churches, that's a different kettle of fish. So the Baptists start to fracture more and more, and the Baptists are more susceptible to these new influences, like the Stone Campbell movement, which we'll get into, these movements which separate them from historic Baptist principles. Now, it's interesting for me to say that because I say historic Baptist principles, and a modern Baptist is going to hear this and say, well, that's not historic. And they're right, because they've been essentially Arminian for over 100 years now. Sure. The Calvinism and the confessionalism of those original Baptists is but a distant memory. And what happened was the American Baptists become such an influence that they then go back to England and influence those Baptists. That's why you have somebody like Charles Spurgeon, who's really an anomaly in his time. You know, even even by his day, he doesn't represent theological mind of the majority of Baptists. So anyway, so that's what's happening to the Baptists. They are going to take a very big beating with these revivals, and they're going to see a lot of their membership retain the Baptist. This is this is important. Retain the Baptist name, but not retain Baptist doctrine. And the Baptists have always been big about missions and evangelism with like William Carey and that thing. But but Carey's a Calvinist. Carey does not represent these big revivalists that come along later. And then you finally have the Anglicans. And so from the Anglicans come the Methodists. And the Methodists are very influential in the First Great Awakening and the Second. And then from the Methodists break away the Holiness Churches or the Wesleyan Churches. And their hallmark is basically a very ascetic lifestyle like you saw in the original Methodists. Remember, Methodists weren't always a mainline American denomination. They were marked by a very strict way of living, a method, if you will. (laughs) Imagine that. (laughs) So you see the holiness breakaway and the Wesleyans. Now, I, I do find it interesting. So the holiness churches and the churches of Christ are both going to claim one man for themselves, Barton W. Stone, one of these big revivalists that uh, that we'll get into. But they're both really rather different in their emphases. But the holiness movement, which is still very much alive in the southern United States, and the Wesleyan movement too, which I suppose you mostly see in the in the South, but like the Church of the Nazarene, for example, would be part of this historic lineage. Do, do they have Nazarene churches where you're where you're at? Um, I'm trying to think. I'm I'm sure they do. We actually have a a self described Wesleyan church. Okay, not so too there you go. So you've got so. you've got legit Wesleyans. So there you yeah. go. Where I'm from, every other church is Holiness or Wesleyan. But if you go back and look at the at the church register, a lot of them 
I mean, the vast majority of them find their roots in some Methodist Episcopal church in the 1800s. Sure. And, and so that's what's happening. The fracturing and the reorganization of historic denominations and historic confessions. I can't help but point out here, too, that the Methodists being influenced by the Moravians through Wesley. Sure. Yeah. From his famous exper- experience with them singing German hymns, right? Wasn't that what they were doing? Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, a, strange, it's a strange story. But, you know, Mor- you know, the Moravians for like, how often do you run into a Moravian? Never, uh, right? Like, like, hardly, I, like yeah. hardly any. Like, I worked with a guy, 80 years old one time, baptized Moravian in Long Island, New York as a boy. Who knows? You know, I haven't really met too many since. Um, and, and he was all about his spiritual marriage, I guess. <laughs> right? But No, he was a single guy, lived in a camper, but that's neither here nor there. Another thing uh, here or there. He, well, he, anyway. Yeah, but it is funny the influence Moravians have, and we forget about them. Yeah, fair perhaps enough. Perhaps even on us Lutherans, but anyway. Yeah, easy now. <laughs> easy now. Right. But we've talked, okay, so you've talked quite a bit about then about the established denominations, and it's good to see how that's affecting them and how they're being fractured and kind of split up as a result of this, at least. But splitting up is invariably going to mean that something new is coming. Right. So, I mean, what are the the new movements of the Second Great Awakening and, you know, how do they affect us today? Right. So the first thing I'm going to say is, and I'll ask you this question, is what is Christian primitivism? You're throwing it back on me. All right. You're throwing it back on you just, just for the bands. <laughs> exactly. I would define Christian primitivism as an attempt to return to what is conceived as the purity of the earliest part of the church. This idea that the church had it right until something went wrong, uh, often for very long periods of time. And then now the primitivist movement is seeking to go back to that original purity. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's, It's a back to the Bible movement. Okay, or what is perceived as a back to the Bible movement. Now, we too believe in sola scriptura. Mm-hmm. It's a hallmark of Protestantism, hard to escape, hallmark of the Reformation. Mm-hmm. But it, it has a very different form in the Second Great Awakening. Well, would you say that the difference between what we would do with our attempt to purify, to reform, is a little bit different because we're at least willing to say, hey, We've gone off the rails. We need to kind of clean things up a bit. Whereas a primitivist would say, we really went off the rails and there's nothing redeemable. Therefore, we have to cut it all away and start over. Yes. Yes. And that comes about in degrees. Now, most are not going to say the church is lost because that is makes it very difficult to deal with Jesus Christ's words. You know, the gates of hell will not prevail against. This. Okay. Um, but they'll say it was, you know, it might not have been dead, but it was on live support. So you have men like Barton W. Stone and Alexander Campbell. Stone and Campbell, both Presbyterians. Campbell actually goes from the Thomas and Alexander, father and son duo, Alexander being the most influential as the son. They go from basically from Presbyterianism to, to, to the Baptist church, and they keep getting kicked out till they start their own movement. Barton W. Stone is at this great revival uh, known as the Cambridge Revival in Cambridge, Kentucky. Two very significant revivals of the Second Great Awakening are the Revival of 1800 and Cane Ridge. 
and both of them are in Kentucky. A revival of 1800 is this revival that grows out of the Scottish sacrament season, which is basically think of like a week long festival, a Christian festival. Then at the end of it, you, you partake of the Lord's supper. Okay, if only because of the, the distances, right? So everybody's right, gathered right. together right, 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 over right. a long distance. So anyway. Exactly. So you have that big movement, and then that attracts people from other denominations. Then you have Cane Ridge, which gets even bigger. And Cane Ridge, or Cane Ridge is like 1801. So you have 1800 and 1801 going on here. And you have Presbyterians, but then you have mostly Presbyterians, but then you have Methodists. And Baptists who uh, who come and preach at this thing, and there are these big, big revival movements that break out from this. Now, what is the significance then of having a Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterian all share the same pulpit? I suppose you would say you're you're hearing fairly different messages. Is that kind of what you're getting at here? Or? Well, what this is going to lead to, though, is this. An erosion of denominationalism and this oh, idea I, I then that, re- that these revivals are leading to a Christian unity. So one of the great hallmarks of Christian primitivism then is we only practice what is taught in the Bible explicitly. Okay, so it's, it's basically borrowing that from classic Presbyterianism, the regulative principle of worship. Now, they fail at this, as we'll soon see, but... We're only going to go by what we can see clearly in the Bible. Anything apart from that, any in, in, information from church fathers or anything like that is, is, is largely ignored. And we're going to be about unity because for them to be a part of, this is how it develops, to be a part of these denominations is to create division within the body of Christ and is therefore a sin. That is why you have the so-called Stone and Campbell movement. Barton W. Stone, Alexander Campbell meet together. They shake hands. They do have some differences. They shake hands, though, and agree in unity. So you have Barton W. Stone's Christian movement and Alexander Campbell's Disciples movement come together. To this day, the Christian church, churches of Christ that come into that movement, believe it to be, if not a sin, a great error to be referred to as Lutheran or Presbyterian or Episcopalian. They think you can only be referred to as um, using a word used in scripture. So Christian, disciple, whatever, as if we would reject the label Christian. Now, this is important though. It's a movement about unity and we absolutely agree with unity. You and I agree that we should dwell in unity. Sure. And, And that unity is found in what is taught in scripture. No Christian on earth denies that principle. They might add tradition to it, But nobody denies the principle that Christians should live and dwell in unity and confess the same thing. Here's the problem, though. Who decides what's true here? So you have the great publishing movement of the Second Great Awakening. And and like we mentioned, the Millennial Harbinger, right? And you get this saying then that in the Second Great Awakening, the bishops are the publishers. And so you have this, this, it's really funny. So what comes about is this, this unity movement and these great revivals, and a rejection of denominationalism, and an insistence upon congregational autonomy and congregational government. And yet, you have someone like Alexander Campbell, who is writing in his magazine that any other form of church government besides congregationalism is a grievous sin and is not a true church. Okay, any, anybody who would baptize by any mode other than immersion is, is not a true church. Anybody who would do this, that, or the other, making these fiats from his magazine. 
insisting upon congregational autonomy, and yet he would show up at random congregations and demand that they submit to his teaching authority. Okay, so that's the first, so the Stone-Campbell movement, very significant. From that, from uh, Campbell's, one of Campbell, Campbell's followers are, so they're going to be known as restorationists. Alexander Campbell Stone, it's the restoration movement. We are restoring the true church on earth. Well, one of Campbell's followers, Signe Rigdon, goes and follows a little-known movement out of New York called the Latter-day Saint movement. Mm-hmm. So well, there, yeah. So you move quickly from something that resembles established Christianity. You know, the Campbellites, Alexander Campbell, someone accused him of being a modalist, but he's still going to use traditional Trinitarian language, for example, right? Or try to use mm-hmm. traditional mm-hmm. historic doctrines when he can. What does Joseph Smith do? He absolutely reinvents the wheel. So you quickly move from new movements to quite honestly so-called new inspirations. So the Mormons, the Latter-day Saints, are going to have all kinds of new revelation coming from the prof- from their prophet, Joseph Smith. Yeah, take that soundbite out of context. Um, <laughs> okay, but the Mormons aren't unique there. The Mormons are extremely important for American history at the time, and I wish we had more time to go into it. Maybe we'll do a whole episode on it. But then not only the Mormons come out of this, the Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventism. Everybody is coming up saying, we have recovered the true church. We have restored it. Mm-hmm. Now, this looks very different, though, from what happens during the Lutheran Reformation. We are not claiming to have revealed something that was unknown or new. We are not claiming new revelation. We do seek continuity with tradition, with good tradition. The Second Great Awakening does not. They jettison that which is very much part of the American spirit at the time. Well, maybe it's worth pointing out here, uh, just as a side note, lest our uh, listeners get the wrong impression. It's not as if what they're doing is completely unique in church history. And I'm only trying to... That's good, yeah. I'm only trying to emphasize this because it might sound like, you know, nobody thought of coming up with new revelations until the Mormons or something like that. Well, that's not exactly true because you do have inspirationist type groups coming out of the post-Reformation era. Like, I mean, I suppose the most famous ones would be like the Amana colonies. I mean, you do have inspirationists, but the difference is inspirationists from the post-Reformation period never had any kind of serious pull, never had any kind of serious influence anywhere near compared to what the Mormons, for example, have done to the American religious landscape. So they they were very much weird, not the, Mor- the Mormons, the, the manna, you know, they were secluded, they were set off by themselves, and therefore they didn't have anywhere near the influence. But the Mormons, on the other hand, oh, good gravy. I mean, think of how much influence they have even today. Yeah, absolutely. And then you have it even outside of the United States and Europe and the Waldensians, other other kind of weird things that pop mm-hmm. up or di- different things that pop up. So, yeah, the Mormons have extraordinary influence. The Jehovah's Witness have more influence than we want to give them credit for. Well, sure. I mean, yeah, when people make fun of missionaries, they usually have a Jehovah's Witness in, in mind. Yeah, and if not a Jehovah's Witness, a, a Mormon. And then, you know, Adventism, which kind of gets forgotten, but it's also very influential at the time. And, you know, we still have notable politicians who are Adventists and things like that. Several senators, they're, you know, probably more Adventist senators in the United States than Lutheran ones, quite possibly. True, true. Um, But now, come on, Willie, I really enjoyed graham crackers, so. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Yeah, They were all about that health. (laughs) 
<laughs> so yeah, so so folks, what we're what we're saying is is that these revivalists who came up, and we're going to talk about their tactics on the other side of the break as for um, as far as contemporary application, but they all say the same thing, and it starts out very innocuous. Well, look at this great movement we have here in Kentucky. Beautiful rolling hills and all these people have come and they're here for, for weeks on end hearing the word of God, Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist. And we're all worshiping together in unity. Surely this is the Holy Spirit. Meanwhile, somebody's claiming new inspiration. Somebody's claiming the Holy Spirit has taken possession of them and is causing them to bark like a dog or climb a tree or roll around. That's the movement we're talking about here. But they claim the Holy Spirit. But they always claim unity, and they say we're Christians only. Okay, how do you know we're the we're the religion of the Bible? Because we're Christians, and we only use the Bible. That very quickly gives rise to new doctrines that come out because men who weren't trained to interpret the scriptures or didn't have those gifts, and that quickly, very quickly, causes people to be susceptible to men like Joseph Smith or Charles Taze Russell or Mary Baker Eddy. They fall prey to this because they get caught up in these revivals and in these new movements and in a perceived move of the Holy Spirit. And then the genie is out of the bottle. And all of a sudden the Mormons number in the millions. The Jehovah's Witnesses are huge. And you have someone like the, the Stone Campbell movement, which eviscerates the Baptists in the United States so much that good Reverend Boyce, very orthodox, by Baptist standards man at the time, very influential Boyce College on the campus of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, says, and he's a contemporary, that we're lucky that Alexander Campbell did not get a seat on the boards of any of our universities or seminaries because it would have absolutely destroyed the Baptist church in America. So that's the influence that these men wielded. I mean, Campbell goes on to be a, a wealthy man, and a very influential politician himself. Uh, Joseph Smith, I think we all know what becomes of him. Arguably, Brigham Young is more influential politically, but we can't discredit these things, and we can't underplay how much it shook the religious landscape of the time and the established doctrinal understandings of historic American religion. Now, we haven't talked about Lutherans much, simply because they don't represent this great majority this great insular thing that Lutherans had and have is that for in large part, like for the Missouri Senate, for example, we're going after Germans in the beginning. And they didn't speak English in a lot of cases. Now, they do suffer the effects of this. And Walther, CFW Walther talks about this a lot. I don't want to discount that. But you don't hear a lot about Lutheranism in histories of the Second Great Awakening because it doesn't have the sheer numbers in this period just yet. And it doesn't have the same influences and the same reach that these other movements do, and quite possibly simply because of the language barrier and geographic barriers. Would you say that's fair? No, I think that is fair. We did have the, the language to kind of help preserve our identity. Yeah. So. Which sounds like an odd thing to say, right? You know, we, we kind of cast that as a negative, but here it might be a very, very firm positive as far as preserving our doctrine and practice. So. Well, we'll talk about that more on the other side. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. We'll be back in just a few moments. 
A word fitly spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all His fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills and Zelwyn Heidi here, again talking Second Great Awakening, revivalism, a little bit of everything. We picked up going through a very concise history of some of the major players in the movement. A little bit esoteric for some of you, but that's okay. Remember, Wikipedia is your friend if you want to learn more. Yeah, and maybe we can pick up with some of these topics later on. Yeah, well, absolutely. We, we can we can revisit them and go into greater detail. If you do have any questions, remember, we do have our discussion group on Facebook, Word Fitly Posting, or check us out, facebook.com slash Word Fitly, Twitter at Word Fitly, or our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We'd be more than happy to answer any questions or make any clarifications or yeah. settle any scruples you might have. <laughs> Or just debate. Or just debate. That's what we're here for. It's fun. Intramural debate, always a good time. So where should we go from here, Z? Well, we've we've talked about the the what, and we've talked about the who of the Second Great Awakening. And so maybe it's worthwhile now moving into the present and talking about how it continues to affect us. Because I think the problem with history sometimes is people might say, well, that's history. What does that have to do with me? When in reality, the Second Great Awakening, as we try to emphasize, does affect the American scene very strongly, yeah. even today. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it, it is kind of funny. We we view history a lot of times as basically, well, only a few things affected me. The resurrection of Christ, and then then like World War II and the Third Reich. That, you know, those are the two big <laughs> events that for some reason we say affects us. But no, all of history is part of God's providence. And you were raised up and you stand on the shoulders of what came before you. Or sometimes you lay in the ditches of what, of what came before you. But we do deal as Americans with the legacy of the Second Great Awakening and really and truly world Christianity does as well. Global South, even England, Europe deal with, with the legacy of the Second Great Awakening. One of the first things we have to remember is that the heroes of the Second Great Awakening are revered by their modern-day adherents. Now, when I say heroes, I'm not saying they're my heroes, I'm not saying they're your heroes, but the major players are absolutely revered by those who believe in what they did. The Churches of Christ, Christian churches, absolutely adore Alexander Campbell and, to a lesser extent, Barton W. Stone. How do the Mormons feel about Joseph Smith, Zellman? I'd say they still view him pretty positively. <laughs> yeah, he's going to be judging them at the end day, so I hope you know they, they would. Well, okay, um, fair. You know, or I mean, Brigham there, Young or any of them. Or, so. or Brigham Young. There, there are examples that are contrary to this thesis, though. Mary Baker Eddy, you know, there's kind of a love-hate relationship with her, with the Adventists. <laughs> but but the point is, is that, or I'm sorry, Mary Baker Eddy not, is not as Church of Christ scientist, Christian science movement, not the Adventists, I misspoke. But the point is, you know, they kind of go back and forth sometimes on her. But these great men who are part of their shared church history are revered so Sometimes we have to tread lightly on these super apostles because that shuts down any conversation immediately. For a lot of us, we don't understand the appeal of Joseph Smith. We view him as a con artist, you know, or a snake oil salesman. 
Mm-hmm. But for the Mormon, he is viewed in a completely different way. That doesn't mean that when we talk to a Mormon, we uphold the good name of Joseph Smith or anything like that. But just recognize how influential these men were and how they continue to be for these people. Well, you might find a parallel in our own circles on how we uphold Martin Luther. Very much in the sense, not in the sense of like idolizing him. Sure. But in the sense of... You know, we might take it very ill if someone were to speak ill of Luther, right? Right, right. And like a good Calvinist is not going to cotton to someone slandering John Knox or John Calvin. Yeah, one, six and one, half a dozen the other. <laughs> right, very, very similar. Difference in language, but... Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so so that legacy is felt. That's the direct historic legacy that, that you see. The other legacy is probably a bit more subtle. That is in the method of revival. You take a man like Charles Finney, who it's really, here's what's good about Finney. Here's what's refreshing about Finney is he doesn't hide too much. He's an animal. And and he, he writes in his books, I took the principles that I learned as a lawyer as far as influencing juries and applied them to preaching. So basically he shows you how he does all of his tricks. And that's that way today. Well, you had these initial revivals, for example, the Second Great Awakening. These It began with emotionalism and enthusiasm, people wailing. That's where we get the, the, the term wailing bench, although you don't hear wailing bench. Zelman, do you remember from Church History 4 what the wailing bench was? Well, I've almost always heard it referred to as the anxious bench, unless we're talking about two different things. No, nope, nope, we're right there. And, and from what I understand of the anxious bench, it was a small hard wooden chair set up in front of the congregation that somebody would sit on with the aim of driving them to a rather emotional repentance. Yeah. So that's absolutely right. The anxious bench. I went with the, I went with the B title, but absolutely right, folks. It's going to be called the anxious bench and nine out of 10 things you read, but you don't hear that term today in these, in these churches that follow this revivalistic style. They call it the altar, which is interesting. You go into a church like this, a holiness church, for example, Wesleyan church, the altar is going to be what we what would look like a communion rail to us, but that's what they mean. But those, those patterns set down, anxious bench is now what they call an altar, but it's just a place with kneelers so you can go and have this emotional outburst. You unquestionably see the roots of modern Pentecostalism in revivals, even as early as the revival of 1800 or Cane Ridge in 1801, because... You have people claiming the Holy Spirit is causing them to lose control of their bodies and they're rolling around on the ground. You have people claiming that the Holy Spirit is giving them utterances that sound like a dog barking or growling or weeping. You see that beginning with Azusa Street almost 100 years later, a little over 100 years later. You see it in the is it the 80s or 90s that the Toronto Blessing comes and people are, are like rolling on the floor and laughing and claiming it's the Holy Spirit? Uh, I'd, I'd have to look it up. But the but it's, it's 80s or 90s, Toronto airport. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What is laid down as a pattern for revival in the Second Great Awakening is what is carried on through to this day. If, if you're claiming then, I mean, what you're saying that the, the influence from... The Second Great Awakening to Pentecostalism is more or less an indirect one. Is that what you're getting at here? Indirect, historically speaking? No, no I think it's direct historically, and but I think it's largely unconscious. I don't think people think of it in terms. I don't think that a lot of modern charismatics, if they're 
culturally aware because they'll typically say, no, our pattern was laid down at Pentecost. But if they're historically aware, they'll tend to go back to Azusa Street. Right. Or maybe, maybe Charles Parnham. Okay. Okay. Or if you're British, Smith Wigglesworth. I mean, you know, there are a few other guys, but Azusa Street's (laughs) the big, the big one. But if you look at what's going on, the big difference for Azusa Street is is that it's uh, black. And so they claim mm-hmm. that it moves out of the black church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, that's an interesting historic conversation. Who influences who? You mm-hmm. know, because the common historical interpretation is that Africans borrow Afro traditions or African traditions and bring them into the church. But it's 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 a very interesting historical thing because you actually see kind of it working both ways. You see African slaves earlier, even in the first Great Awakening, really adopting some of their spirituals, not necessarily from African tunes, but possibly from the Scottish Psalter. Controversial point number 57 <laughs> of the day. The ecstasy found in African worship was also present in the revivals of the Second Great Awakening and these African churches or these black American churches that you see in California in the early 1900s are, are often coming out of established white churches who already have similar practices is my point here. I'm not taking, I'm not taking away from anybody. If, if you want to take the line that they borrowed African dance and put it in or African expression and put it in, that's fine. But we, we have to acknowledge that they're at least influenced by the Second Great Awakening, consciously or unconsciously. The only reason why I'm kind of debating this point with Willie, just to clarify things here, is because the Second Great Awakening, of course, has a tremendous amount of influence all by itself. But if, if it has a, an influence through Pentecostalism, like uh, Willie is suggesting that it does, that would mean that it has an inordinately large influence on the world even today because pentecostalism of course being what the third largest group of christian christianity in the world sure and certainly among the fastest growing of the and among the fastest growing and so i'm just and i guess the reason why i'm asking if it's direct or indirect is because i would consider direct to be you know this you know basically like a genealogical like this dude was this dude's teacher down to it but you're seeing it more as like just general influences right because after the second great awakening the majority of pastors or a great uh, a great number of pastors are going to be influenced by this new school of revivalism and sure. and let's think about african revivals and latin american revivals i work exclusively with latin americans okay mm-hmm. i've been there lived there okay it's my it's my family, right? So <laughs> I I see what happens, but I've also seen this that often it's not springing up naturally. There's usually an evangelist who has come from typically the United States who mm-hmm. has influenced them to worship in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Okay, and in Africa it's the same way. A, a charismatic guy goes over to Africa and influences them. Now, in the case of Africa, does it dovetail nicely into their culture already? which is very exuberant. Yeah, it does. But I think it's worth looking at the historic root. Is this something that just springs up naturally in the global South? Or is it something that's been exported, but which fits nicely into the style already present? I suppose you could even argue that, you know, some of these influences coming over 
from England. I mean, like you mentioned earlier, the English Baptists and the Baptists here. So, I mean, this just because something is exported doesn't mean that it isn't going to fit nicely into a particular region. Yeah, yeah. And and really, we're only having this discussion to say, to what degree does this period of history affect the rest of American history and then world history? <laughs> so the question is, does it affect it a lot or does it affect it a lot, a lot? Yeah. And so I actually, I, I take the view that the, that the, that the genesis of modern charismatic worship is not necessarily found in the first great awakening, but is certainly found in the second great awakening. Fair now, now you do, because that's the thing you have emotionalism being a big part of the first great awakening, but it manifests itself very differently in the second great awakening. I, I think it's very unfair to compare a Jonathan Edwards to a Charles Finney and certainly a George, oh, a George Whitfield is very unfair. Yeah, and we we might not like the way Edwards went about it, and we might actually love it. I don't know you, but uh, <laughs> but, but you, it, it's just absolutely not fair to to say George Whitfield, for example, is like Campbell or Stone. I'm trying to think of some better examples of preachers. So we have to we have to deal with that, and I think it's very easy to make the case for revivalism in the Second Great Awakening, leading to the Azusa Street revival, for example. And if it does, if this if this hypothesis holds out, then like you say, it's extremely influential, and we're dealing with it today, in in a un, almost unprecedented way. Not that not that all by itself. If it didn't directly you know influence Pentecostalism, it'd still be highly influential, even if only because we still see many of these groups today. Oh my goodness! I mean, think about think about how many politicians, up to and including presidents and vice presidents, who say who use language like even if they're Catholic or something, they'll say, you know, I had a profound experience and I, and I, and I accepted mm-hmm. the Lord into my heart. Mm-hmm. That's a direct second great awakening style understanding of conversion. Or if you want to talk just straight politics too, you're coming from a nation which had real qualms about electing Kennedy as a Catholic, but just more recently almost had no troubles trying to elect Mitt Romney as a Mormon. Yeah, well, that's a very good point. You know, that had not occurred to me. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah, yeah. Mormonism is more natural for an American than Catholicism. Yeah. Now, that's a, yeah. that's a historical thing I think you could prove pretty easily, <laughs> even though we ran them out of Illinois and Iowa. You know, they, they weren't too friendly to Catholics. You know, we, we forget that animosity that Americans had and possibly still have towards the, the Romanists. Mm-hmm. But no, that's, yeah. a, that's a very good point. And really, we've even seen Lutherans. Now we're getting extra political. But we've even seen Lutherans, <laughs> politicians, have we not, who, when confronted with an historic Lutheran doctrine, really back off from that and then adopt the language of the evangelical? Sure. You know, to, sure. You know, just, just to sort of save face. So, yeah, I, I think it's tremendously influential. And I think it's something, again, going back to the very beginning, that every Lutheran pastor needs to realize. You don't have to have a Ph.D., in American prairie religion, but you need to be at least aware of what's going on here and of the mindset. Don't just say, well, these people are kooks. These people believe the Holy Spirit's giving them these signs, or these people believe that that because they've said a sinner's prayer or, or whatever, that they're saved and they're just kooks, okay? Because they're very influential, not just politically, but they're very influential on your members. Mm-hmm. And so, and our, and I know we're, we're actually going overtime on this episode, but we got to look at that. There are some positives I think to take from the f- the first, certainly, and the and the second great awakening. 
The zeal for evangelism was good. It was. It's good to want to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, mm-hmm. do a lot of people preach a false gospel? Yes, neither here nor there, though. The desire for holiness is good. Mm-hmm. Whether it becomes something bad later on, again, another question. And the love for the Scripture and the desire to live according to the Scripture and to teach according to the Scripture is an admirable goal. Unfortunately, there are negatives here because in their zeal for sola scriptura, they reject history. And we cannot rightly interpret the Bible apart from history and tradition. We have to build upon, or not build upon, but we have to learn from our forefathers. And your fathers know better than you. Second, (laughs) it's part of that pride, pride really, in a lack of education or formality. And that leads many to be led astray. There are many, many Christian preachers out there who are absolutely proud of the fact that they did not go to seminary and that they have no education beyond high school or middle school or college and no formal training in the scriptures or the languages. And why are they proud of that? They have different reasons. They'll tell you Jesus didn't go to seminary. Also, the Son of God, again, neither here nor there. Never mind the fact that all the apostles had a three-year residential learning program at the feet of the Messiah— but they're very proud of this. And and so we're attacked really as Lutheran pastors in the LCMS on all sides. We're attacked by our formality, by our love of historic worship. We're attacked because of our education. We're attacked because of our supposed unwillingness to accept these new movements of the Holy Spirit. You know, Zelwyn, if you don't accept that the Holy Spirit causes people to giggle like an idiot or to bark like a dog, then you're just denying the Holy Spirit. Or maybe to put it in a, a little bit different, maybe a little less polemic way. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You know, anybody who wants to question my Lutheran street cred should listen to the end of this uh, video and see that I'm just yeah. as irascible as any other confessional Lutheran. Yeah, so. exactly. You're just—it's delightful. I, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm just pointing out that we also this idea that an insistence on doctrine or the insistence on particularity is often seen as rigid or unloving. The idea that, you know, if we're going to proclaim the truth, let's just proclaim Christianity and not bring in all of the weird particulars of the Missouri Synod. Sure. Now, this is where, and and as we're coming to the end, I do think we can end on a positive because I do think that the Missouri Fathers embody the best of the Second Great Awakening. All right. (laughs) All right, here All we right. go. <laughs> Ending on a controversy. All right, let's go. And here's what I mean. They, they come sort of in the middle or the tail end of the Second Great Awakening. So they're going to be dealing with the Third Great Awakening, which is just the metastasis. You know, Walther sees this. Walther sees the era of revivalism. But mm-hmm. what do the Missouri Fathers, not just the Saxons with Walther, but what, what do the other ones have, like Winnikin and others? They come here to a strange country. Okay, and they go west and they reach people and they boldly say, hey, here is the church of Christ. Okay, here is the church you find in the scriptures. This is the church into which you were baptized. Here is where we're gathering. Here's where you receive God's gifts. And the Missouri Synod and the other faithful synods at the time were unapologetic in their confession and they were bold. And these were men. It's easy to be bold on a podcast. Like, mm-hmm. like I'm doing. It's easy to be bold on Facebook, <laughs> but these men were getting their boots on the ground and getting their boots dirty. They were circuit riding. They were going around gathering in the lost, gathering in 
the sheep who had gone astray and teaching them according to the word. They embodied what is good about American Christianity and about Americanism, which is a zeal, a stubborn zeal, which is why they fit in so well in America, and a Christian zeal, which is why they please the Lord with their work. Go read up about Friedrich Winnikin and what he did. So in that sense, if we take the Second Great Awakening as that, then we do embody it in the best of ways. And we, emb- sure. and we embody it in a way that is in line with historic Christianity. We don't need to reinvent anything. We are giving you the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're doing it at great personal strain and cost. And that's the lesson for Lutherans, I think. Stand on the shoulders of the giants who were before you. Honor your fathers who came before you. Learn from them and maybe, just maybe, mimic that example. But then after you honor them and learn from them, get your boots dirty. Get your get boots out. dirty. Put on your big boy pants. Go be Lutherans like Friedrich Winnikin. And, and, and your go. yellow pants and get going. <laughs> yeah. Preach the word of the Lord and never give up and never surrender and be stubborn when you got to. So, yeah. Oh, man. All right. So that's going to wrap it up. This has been a word fitly spoken. I'm Willie Grills. This is Elwin Heidi. Like we mentioned before, you got questions, check us out Word Fitly Posting on Facebook. If you want to learn more about us, check us out wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. God love you and God bless. <laughs>